Hey everyone, welcome back to the Future Cities Podcast. I'm Jason Sauer, your host for this week. Uh, you may recall my previous episodes, like the one on green gentrification or the resilience of the undocumented in Phoenix or even on wetlands in Valdivia, Chile. For today's episode, I'm going to be joined by Sam Markoff, a postdoctoral student here at Arizona State University and a fellow host himself of a few previous episodes of the Future Cities Podcast. So this past month, we saw a lot of news stories about extreme flooding in the Midwest, where I'm from, shout out Kansas City, uh, which got us thinking about how well infrastructure actually protects us from extreme weather events, and how myopic practices in designing and placing infrastructure can put people in greater danger than they otherwise might be. Sam was actually the lead author on a paper on this very topic from 2018 called Interdependent Infrastructure as Linked Social, Ecological, and Technological Systems to Address Lock-In and Enhance Resilience. We took the opportunity to talk about what exactly are the problems that help create disastrous flooding like we see in the Midwest, as well as his recommendations for how to avoid recreating these problems in the future infrastructure projects. We ended up talking a lot more about Miami than we did the Midwest, but the lessons that we learned in Miami are applicable everywhere, uh, both in the United States and across the globe. Uh, if hearing people talk about infrastructure really does it for you, then I cannot recommend enough the Safe to Fail adaptation episode from December 1st of 2018 of the Future Cities podcast, hosted by Yoan Kim and Stephen Elser, where they talk about uh, another critical aspect of infrastructure failure. Uh, but let's go ahead and get this interview started. Uh, hi, I'm sitting here today with Sam Markoff, a PhD you have? Postdoc. <laughs> postdoc, excuse me. Uh, yeah, great start. Yeah. Uh, I'm sitting here with postdoc Sam Markoff, uh, postdoc here at Arizona State University, um, who is a colleague of mine on the... Uh, Urban Resilience to Extreme Sustainability Research Network, so uh, sorry for not being creative enough to find a guest outside of the network, but I promise we have uh, good material to talk about today. Um, so in particular, I want to talk to you about your paper, uh, Interdependent Infrastructure as Linked Social, Ecological, and Technological Systems to Address Lock-In and Enhance Resilience. Uh, so, what the heck is this paper even about? <laughs> uh, yeah, so the, the title is definitely a mouthful, um, but what, we're, what we were really hoping to do here was kind of unpack uh, a couple of key issues related to how we think about infrastructure systems and cities in the context of uh, ultimately trying to make them better equipped to handle extreme events like flooding and heat events and things like that. Um, and so those, those couple key elements that we wanted to explore further were one, the idea that technological systems and infrastructure systems don't really operate or exist in a vacuum, uh, maybe in spite of how engineers tend to think about them or are trained to think about them. There are these broader social and ecological environments and contexts that the infrastructure is constantly interacting and engaging with that are important to keep in mind. And then also the, the second key piece that we wanted to explore was this sort of historical aspect of our, of our infrastructure and how it's developed and how kind of initial decisions and actions related to developing the infrastructure in the first place inhibit the system's ability to change and adapt uh, kind of in the context of a changing environment. Gotcha. Um, so let's 
explain what you, or put, the, put in other words what you just said by talking about a specific example. And in the paper, you bring up uh, Miami, which I think is a great case for both talking about the problem as it is, as well as um, exploring the sort of solutions that um, this sort of social, ecological, technological systems perspective um, can potentially help improve upon. So um, go ahead and unpack the example that you've given for uh, Miami and what is identified as sunny day flooding or in other circles is known as uh, king tides. So go ahead and talk about that problem. Yeah, so king tide floods are kind of a unique uh, event that are becoming increasingly common in low-lying coastal areas like Miami. Uh, and what's unique about them is that if you went outside, it'd be a perfectly clear, sunny day. You wouldn't notice anything's going on, except you walking down the, you're walking down the street and all of a sudden you're uh, ankle deep or, or maybe increasingly knee deep in water and you're kind of wondering what the heck is going on. Um, and so in this case, the combination of sea level rise with sort of the natural tidal cycle um, combine in certain part, certain times of the year to push sea level up through the storm system and back out onto the streets. Uh, and so ultimately what you end up with is uh, flooding on the streets, on the sidewalks, and making it hard for people to walk around and move in the city, harder for vehicles to get around, and, and ultimately creating a major issue for uh, just sort of day-to-day -day life in places like Miami Beach. Yeah, and there's a, a really cool um, astronomical side to this as well. Uh, it's a phenomenon known as syzygy, which is the uh, point at which um, the moon is closest to the Earth uh, in its uh, I almost said evolutionary, I think revolutionary cycle, um, in a cycle of revolution. Uh, so, I mean, the moon, of course, it, uh, has a gravitic pull on the Earth. It's uh, what controls uh, the tides. Um, and at, as the moon moves closer to the Earth, obviously that um, gravitational force increases. So uh, during certain parts of the year or its um, uh, portions of its orbit, when it's super close to the planet, or at least as close to the planet as it's ever going to be in its cycle, um, it exerts an especially hard pull on that water upwards. Uh, so anyway, I just wanted to, to point out the cool astronomy portion of this here, because uh, I'm a huge nerd. But anyway, <laughs> um, so yeah, you have the, these king tide phenomenon that are happening in the city. Um, and then so what are the, the sort of infrastructure solutions that um, the city pursued in order to, to deal with them? Yeah, so Miami Beach started to experience these events more frequently. And, and perhaps more importantly, each time one of these events happened, more and more water was showing up on their streets and on their sidewalks. And so it was getting to the point where people living in certain parts of the city were actually sort of becoming cut off from the rest of the city. Like they're, they just physically couldn't drive to the work or to the store or to, to, to do whatever they needed to do until the tide kind of receded. Uh, and so to the city's credit, they took sort of a proactive stance to this and started exploring different options for uh, limiting the impacts of these types of events. And the two main strategies that they ended up employing were one, uh, installing pumping stations at different points throughout the, the city that would physically pump the water off of the streets and sidewalks back out into Biscayne Bay. Uh, and then the second option that they employed was actually physically raising the height of streets in certain parts of uh, in certain parts of the city, in particular certain low-lying areas, 
So, uh, you know, similar to how you might see houses or buildings lifted up on stilts in coastal areas, they sort of employ that same idea to their streets in certain parts and, and raise the, the physical height of the streets six inches uh, to a foot and a half or so, um, with the idea being that if you raise the height of the streets, then the water can no longer kind of reach that, that height and you can continue to drive and walk uh, on the streets as, as normal. Cool. Um, and so I guess the next point here is, um, I mean, was that a complete solution? Uh, your paper certainly argues um, that it was not. Uh, so what, what, are the, uh, what are the problems that this uh, solution to um, the king tides has actually created for the city? Yes. So unfortunately, uh, the job was not done uh, at that point. Once they put the pumps in and raised the streets, uh, you would have hoped that that took care of everything. And for the most part, it did deal with the tidal flooding that was going on. However, these strategies uh, started to contribute to other challenges and issues that the city then had to address. And so in particular, this kind of this highlights the idea that uh, it's important to think about infrastructure and technological systems in the context of these broader ecological and social systems. Um, and so in particular, what happened was with the pumping stations, they were pumping untreated water from the streets back out into Biscayne Bay, uh, which is sort of a pristine ecological environment. So the water from the streets had things like oil and trash and other debris uh, that's, that's sort of not really good uh, for the, the, the environment that is sort of natural to the Biscayne Bay and the wildlife that's living in that area. Um, and so uh, as this problem was sort of identified and recognized, people became increasingly kind of concerned about it and, and worried about the longer term impacts that these practices would have on the overall quality of the water in Biscayne Bay and more importantly the sort of uh, quality uh, or the, the impacts of that the water quality degradation would have on the plant life and the wildlife in Biscayne Bay which is an important sort of driver of tourism and quality of life and identity for not only Miami Beach but the broader uh, Miami and Southeast Florida region so uh, protecting that sort of pristine environment uh, is, is sort of very important for that location. And so they had to sort of think about new strategies for uh, treating the water before pumping it straight into the Biscayne Bay. And then the other challenge that sort of emerged, uh, again, relating to these broader social contexts, relates to the elevating of the streets. That did help with the tidal flooding, but uh, but it actually made things worse when heavy precipitation or heavy rain events happened. Uh, as we all know, kind of water follows gravity and tends to flow downward. So whenever heavy rainstorms would come through, the water was sort of funneled by these elevated streets uh, to the fronts of stores and restaurants that were on the lower tier or below that elevated street level. Uh, and sort of basically brought the water right to their front doorsteps and, and ended up kind of creating difficulties for residents and business owners in the areas where the streets weren't actually elevated uh, and, and required sort of a, a revisiting of the solutions as well. So uh, I think this is a good point to then talk about uh, one of the other problems that you've identified here, um, which just ties into the, the general um, issue of not considering infrastructure as the social, ecological, technological um, 
system solutions. So uh, I want to talk about lock-in. So I mean, what we've just described here, or what you've described, is a city that first tried to deal with its um, king tidal flooding problem by using uh, this pumping solution, um, and then also elevating roads. And of course, that has then created um, an issue of uh, basically this sort of untreated water entering Biscayne Bay and causing um, pollution and the problems that are, are tied to that. Uh, you have two objects in the city now, or at least a couple of things operating in the city now, that are sunk costs. Uh, they are already established and kind of any movement forward has to consider the, the sort of existing systems that we potentially already have in place here. And so in the paper you identify this phenomenon where you're sort of dealing um, with the fallout of these infrastructure solutions. Not that they're all bad, of course, obviously it solved the flooding problem, but then like all solutions moving forward need to consider that these, uh, these other solutions are, are still at play. Um, and this is the idea of lock-in, I think. Um, so could you, I guess, give a, a good definition of what lock-in is? Because I think you've given a, a pretty good example, but um, just the sort of theoretical idea. Yeah, definitely. So we kind of think of lock-in as constraints on a system or infrastructure today as the result of past decisions and actions. Even if sort of new information emerges or you sort of realize that your system may not currently be set up in a way that's well equipped to handle what's going on kind of currently in the in the broader environment. It's it's often perpetuated or, or made worse by a related concept of path dependency, uh, which we tend to think about as constraints on a system's ability to change or adapt uh, given this sort of new information or this new understanding of the environment in which you're you're living and operating. Uh, and these constraints to change uh, are often the result of, of those changes becoming, being very costly or uh, sort of institutionally or politically difficult to, to implement. And so you kind of end up just sticking on the current trajectory that your system has sort of been on. Sure. And like in this case, you've established a new baseline of like function and flooding in these neighborhoods and expectations. Um, and so all solutions afterwards are, are kind of built on the assumption that that baseline is always going to be in play. So uh, that's kind of the idea that these things get locked in for, for many reasons. You have like layers of infrastructure relying on each other and social institutions that change as people get used to these sorts of uh, infrastructures functioning properly and their own safety and so forth. Um, but of course, that's not uh, necessarily... Yeah, yeah. Sorry. I, go ahead. And <laughs> I, uh, yeah, and I think, I think, returning back to the Miami Beach example for a minute, I think we can talk about a if we think of it as a scenario, I guess, uh, or as a, or a potential scenario that could play out. I think that'll help illustrate this concept of lock-in even more. So, okay. So the city, the city spent anywhere between three hundred and five hundred million dollars to fund these pumping stations. Uh, and to pay for this, usually things like property taxes are kind of the primary mechanism, which sort of creates this, this almost negative feedback loop emerging where uh, if the city needs to maintain a certain amount of revenue, they might encourage more people or businesses to move to the area to broaden their tax base as more people and businesses move to the area more people and infrastructure are vulnerable to these king tide events as well as other flooding events, 
which we know are likely to only increase in the future and get worse, which then requires perhaps more pumps being installed to continue to deal with the issue, and then you sort of repeat the cycle over and over. And so that's sort of one scenario that you can fairly easily imagine where the sort of lockout is, lock-in is transpiring and sort of playing out over time. And once you kind of get into that cycle, it can actually be very difficult to break out, again, kind of emphasizing that idea of, of path dependency. Yeah, and uh, I guess some, uh, a critical point here in the, the context of, of Florida is I just recently learned that Florida doesn't have income tax. It has sales tax and has property tax. So uh, if the government wants to make money, they are really pursuing uh, a strategy of uh, making sure people are paying property taxes. Yeah. Um, so that, or, or visiting and, and buying things. <laughs> yeah, or visiting and buying. Yeah. yeah. Got to get those timeshares. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this is a, another kind of example of this being a, a complex system that um, this infrastructure is, is being installed in and the sort of incentives um, to potentially... Uh, pursue some forms um, as opposed to others, but the, the definite need to, to consider the, the system as a whole. Um, and so one, one of the other concepts that you talk about here that I think is um, critical to understanding um, problems with infrastructure and also one of the advantages of, of using this sort of uh, more holistic um, social, ecological, technological systems lens um, is the idea of infrastructure com complexity. So could you talk for a moment about what you mean by infrastructure complexity? Yeah, I think at a high level, it, it again, it relates back to this idea that the infrastructure doesn't exist in a vacuum. There's social changes, ecological changes. Uh, there's social systems and ecological systems that are interacting with the technological and infrastructure systems at any given moment. Um, and for the most part, infrastructure, once it's kind of in the ground, we tend to kind of set it and forget it, and it's very long-lasting in many cases. So, you know, it's not uncommon to find roads, bridges, pipes, etc., that have been in place for several decades, uh, you know, even, even a century or more. And so if you think back, you know, what were things like 20 or 30 years ago, let alone 100 years ago, uh, it, it kind of tended to look very different than it does today, yet we're still kind of relying on the infrastructure systems to provide similar or the same level of service that they were, were originally installed uh, to provide. And so that idea or is, is sort of becoming increasingly uh, challenged by this sort of complexity that's happening in these broader social and ecological systems. So whether we're talking about um, climate change, where we're expecting more frequent and more extreme precipitation or heat events, to broader uh, changes in population growth. Some areas are experiencing very rapid population increase, and it's hard for the infrastructure to keep up with that. Other areas uh, in maybe Midwestern parts of the country are experiencing population decreases, and it's hard to sort of maintain the level of service and funding required to keep the infrastructure up and running, given the large decrease in population that's happened there. Um, with technological evolution, uh, we're starting to see maybe a shift away from, you know, 
each person owning their own, owning and operating their own vehicle to more ride-sharing environments or, or increasingly uh, autonomous vehicle environments. And, and we don't really know what that's gonna mean for the shape of our cities and, and sort of what we might need the infrastructure to do or how much infrastructure we even need to sort of meet those, those demands. So that's sort of broadly what we mean when we talk about infrastructure complexity is there's, there's sort of all of these uh, difficult to answer and understand dynamics and questions going on that will ultimately impact how the infrastructure performs and the services it provides, uh, but, but we're not quite sure yet how to fully uh, unpack all of that. Yeah, and so that last point is actually what I was hoping um, to, to focus on a bit here, uh, which, and I think I'm quoting the paper pretty directly, is that in, um, infrastructure complexity uh, also describes um, the the phenomenon of um, it, or infrastructure complexity is revealed when systems fail due to tractable and seemingly predictable reasons. Uh, yet the causality behind these failures remains a mystery prior to their onset. So this is getting at the idea of like, yeah, I mean it's very easy for us to historically unpack um, why Miami solutions have uh, produced these problems and so forth. Um, or, you know, say after Hurricane Katrina when the levees failed. Um, but it, that's something that you can really, uh, it's much easier to see in hindsight than it is to kind of predict where the, the fault in the, the system is. Um, and I think that, you know, so when we talk about Miami, this is just um, sort of a case study, not really any sort of like critical indictment yeah. of Miami yeah. being a especially... Um, you know, troubling case or anything like that. That's more just like, oh, it's a great example of a lot of these things going on. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, yeah, we're certainly not trying to pick on <laughs> Miami or anyone else that we mentioned. I think, and many, actually, they're you know they should be applauded for being very proactive in trying to address these problems. But yeah, that that yeah, as you mentioned, the, the main point here is that complexity uh, is sort of this emergent property and 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 it's hard to really understand it until you're kind of going through it and experiencing uh, uh, the, the outcomes of this complexity um, and so yeah we're hoping this sort of sex lens can be one tool for trying to uh, better understand at least some elements of that complexity I don't know if we'll ever be able to get to the point where we can fully understand it uh, but uh, hopefully this gets us at least moving in the right direction Great, and so toward those ends, in the paper you actually give um, some recommendations for like what Miami could potentially do going forward um, that are informed by these uh, this inf- you know the lessons that we've learned about um, infrastructure uh, in these um, systems. Um, so I guess what, what what are your recommendations, or why do you think the or what solutions would the social, ecological, technological systems framing um, potentially provide for a city like Miami? Yeah, so in the kind of the current context or the current example, they tended to prefer sort of more technologically oriented solutions uh, to this king tide flooding, uh, which then created some of these subsequent um, challenges that we already discussed. So uh, in moving forward, broadening the sort of solution space is, is one potential option. So thinking about not only what are some of the technically oriented solutions we could employ, but you know, what are some social or ecologically oriented ones? And so, for example, the initial pumping system might have been designed with built-in treatment to ensure that the water treatment or treatment systems uh, might have been been put in place to ensure that the water leaving the pumps 
uh, was sort of contaminant free, which would hopefully avoid the pollution challenges that, that started to emerge related to Biscayne Bay. Uh, another option is sort of more ecologically based approaches could have been implemented to kind of try and help mitigate some of the runoff and floodwater concerns. So more vegetation would allow for more water to be absorbed into the soil instead of just staying on the street or kind of related more uh, pervious surfaces placed throughout the city, uh, such as permeable pavements or, or other sort of vegetated solutions that, again, allow for more water to be absorbed rather than uh, kind of pooling. So finally, kind of related to the social side of things, we mentioned earlier that although these events, these King Tide events create challenges, they are actually relatively predictable. Um, so you could imagine ways for the residents to kind of alter their commute patterns and schedules during the expected King Tide. There is this sort of idea of what's sometimes called managed retreat or strategic relocation of structures or the abandonment of land or um, I know Portland has sort of experimented with this approach a little bit where the city has actually bought back uh, property from certain residents in floodplain areas. Um, and yeah, this is room for the river and I forgot what country. In the Netherlands, yeah, the Netherlands. yeah exactly, yeah. exactly. So um, it is sort of a, uh, I maybe won't say radical, but it, 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 it does diverge from kind of how we currently think about flooding and, and risk and, and constantly trying to sort of keep the hazards away from us in that bay. It is sort of a different mindset where we're maybe embracing those hazards a little bit more and becoming more accepting of them having an impact on us. Um, so I think this is a, it's an important sort of conversation for us to continue to have both, you know, as citizens and, and, and sort of as policy and decision makers is, you know, when when and, and where and, and who should sort of help lead these efforts to uh, talk about these difficult challenges of, of actually thinking about how to re relocate people or relocate structures rather than continuing to invest in either social, ecological or technological solutions that may only be sort of short-term uh, patches to the to the to the underlying problems, or that may create additional challenges that then require additional resources and efforts to address. Yeah, and this uh, this social side, I, I gets um, it's pretty heated in, in the literature, and then also in a lot of the discussions that I, I see in public. Um, but I mean, like, so the the two sort of paradigms that were they're not, they're not necessarily opposing paradigms, but there's like. Uh, the idea that we can reduce people's risk of experiencing a flood, certainly, um, but that potentially gets us into a situation where our solutions are uh, creating a potential for a future situation where if this infrastructure does fail, then the damages are potentially going to be much greater uh, than they would be had we just experienced this sort of like periodic flooding or periodic um, interruption or damages to our lives. So, uh, I mean, Houston, of course, um, I'm sorry, not Houston, uh, New Orleans being, of course, a, a great example of this, where we have this levee system and people came to rely on it. Uh, and when they finally broke and the flooding did happen, it was, you know, absolutely devastating. Um, would that, would they have been in a better situation had those levee systems not necessarily, um, provided or removed them from risk in the way that they did, but instead people 
um, were encouraged through social or governance programs to uh, sort of weather the, these small floods. Um, this is, I'm not necessarily advocating for, for one of these or the other, yeah. but this is kind of an essential tension that exists um, in the literature and among resilience researchers is whose burden uh, is it to kind of deal with these sorts of issues uh, to what degree and then you know what then you start running of course into a lot of social justice and, and equity problems about you know who's causing the problems in the first place who's expected to bear the brunt um, and if we are expecting people to bear the brunt of it then uh, is there are there social solutions or economic solutions that we can pursue in order to make it not so terrible for them. Sorry, I don't know if you had. No, yeah, it's definitely, and I, yeah, I think no, that's, that's a that's a great point. Like, um, yeah, you can kind of look up and down the the Mississippi River and, and sort of the broader uh, technologically oriented strategies that we've put in place to keep the river where we kind of would like it to be, um, even though the river. Uh, sort of has natural variability and, and can flood as we've as we've seen with Katrina and, and even more recently in with the flooding that's been going on in the Midwest uh, the past month or so um, yeah it's hard to say whether or not the sort of levees and dikes and dams put in place uh, if they weren't there if the risks would would be higher or lower but I, I do think this raises an important point of at least where we have those structures and control mechanisms in place it is important i think for the people living in, the, in those areas and for the people managing those uh those systems to maybe have a broader conversation or, or be more aware uh of the risks that can occur from the, the failure of these systems themselves like um i think we tend to either be unaware of this of the systems in the first place or at the very least unaware of the risk of failure that is inherent in in anything in any system or whether it's social ecological or, or technological um, there are just surprises that we can't plan or prepare for um, and so just acknowledging that those surprises can happen and they will have impacts I think would go a long way towards sort of you helping this conversation get to a place where we can then start to think about uh, should we be living in certain places or should we be having uh, farms or agriculture activity or businesses in certain locations or does it make more sense to sort of return them to their more uh, natural ecological state and figure out other other ways and uh, other ways and other areas for people and businesses to live and then yeah one of the broader sort of social and and uh and equity challenges associated with even doing that type of 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 activity or sort of mass mass movement yeah um i guess i you know uh don't have this one written down so this is not exactly uh this may be difficult to articulate but this uh gets into a bit of the social justice aspect of this when you start considering the the social systems um, at play here or like environmental justice or environmental equity. So um, let's talk about like why people live in uh, these high risk floodplain areas. And this is kind of a complicated situation. There are many possible pathways um, to home ownership or at least occupying 
a space that is uh, potentially not environmentally desirable for many reasons, like it's a, a high flood risk zone, which previously might not have had housing on it. So I guess an example of what I'm trying to get at here is like in many cases, um, and this is true in Latin America as well as in other countries where a lot of these settlements or where people live that are particularly vulnerable to flooding has direct ties to the sort of socioeconomic system at play here. So um, like basically slums will uh, pop up in unoccupied areas, which in planned cities are usually the areas that are most prone to flooding. Uh, and then over time, these slums kind of get recognized as uh, formal housing settlements or the government might um, install plumbing or kind of install these other systems in order to make the life of these individuals more livable. And then over time, um, these uh, spaces get legitimized as formal um, places of housing. And then you get, you know, uh, so it, it's effectively no difference to the city um, from as a, a site of housing. So I guess there's this kind of play when we're deciding like, well, should we think about where people are living and maybe try retreating them from the river? There's this sort of legacy tie to, well, why are they living there in the first place? And it's because they were classed out of housing in the desirable areas because of, you know, socioeconomic histories of these regions. Um, so it's not a, it's a complicated issue. And you can understand why, like, it's engineering the, you know, like the ideal situation in a lot of these cases is just to engineer the risk away. Um, we would like to consider these social ecological systems, but when we're talking about designing like a levy or a flood control system, uh, is this also the appropriate time to address like histories of like redlining or an economic system that is uh, siphoning money away from the poor or, you know, these sorts of things. So. I don't have a question. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, <laughs> and that's, yeah, and I think that kind of underlines some of this broader complexity that we talked about, and again highlights the idea of uh, why it's important to think about these social, ecological, and technological systems in conjunction rather than independent, separate uh, entities. Because at some point or another, they're all going to interact with each other, and so the better that you can sort of acknowledge and recognize that. Uh, beforehand or in a proactive manner, I think hopefully the better off we can get at, at sort of arriving at, at ways of managing risk or reducing vulnerability that are sort of more equitable, more fair, more suitable, more agreeable for, for everybody, um, rather than kind of the current approach, at least in the United States, where we tend to think everything's fine and in the cases that it's not fine or a system breaks or breaks down, uh, we're, we're really good at kind of dealing with it then uh, and responding accordingly, uh, but you kind of wonder what could have been done beforehand to sort of prevent any type of disruption or impact in the first place. And and yeah, just to kind of highlight some of the complexity a little bit more related to where people are living in, in relation to the hazards that they're exposed to or the risks that they're exposed to. Uh, yeah, I think generally it is, it is the case that people living in more low-lying or kind of flood-vulnerable areas tend to be of lower uh, economic means or lower socioeconomic status. But there are some interesting counterexamples to that. So in places like Miami, it's actually the more wealthy people living right on the coastlines because they can afford sort of the beachfront property. And so they're actually the ones that are at least exposed to things like sea level rise and storm surges. And actually, sorry, just to insert here, we see this here in Phoenix too, where 
um, and other places that have like gated communities. Uh, some of these places that build their walls, you know, um, as solid structures, especially at the base, are basically building um, the structures that are keeping rainwater in. So under extreme precipitation events, they're flooding themselves by having constructed these walls to separate them uh, from outside communities, which is, of course, a socioeconomic sort of consideration. But yeah, so this, uh, Sam's totally right. There, there are a lot of ways that uh, people can make themselves vulnerable to flooding. Yeah, and then the really interesting case is Houston, where there's actually no zoning laws. Uh, so any type of building uh, can be built anywhere. Um, and so there's like, it's there's pretty much no real correlation to your socioeconomic status or your income and your vulnerability to flooding or your likelihood of living in a low-lying area. It's all kind of uh, random there. And so again, just the more we can think about these social, technological, and, and ecological components together, uh, the more we can kind of understand these dynamics and then and then figure out the best policies and strategies to uh, minimize the risk. Well, thank you so much, Sam, uh, for coming on and talking with me as opposed to being a host on another episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, Sam has done a number of episodes for the pod. Uh, yeah, it's interesting that the table's turned a little bit. So. Sure. <laughs> yeah. uh, you want to plug your other episodes or any other work that you're working on currently? Um, not really. All right. Yeah. <laughs> no, just like, yeah, it's just, you know. Yeah, go uh, through the archives. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just keep up with the uh, with the Future Cities podcast, and I'm sure you'll hear my voice pop up again here and there. So. Well, great. Thanks so much, Sam. Future Cities Podcast is an outreach effort brought to you by the Urban Resilience to Extremes Sustainability Research Network, or UREX as we usually refer to it. To learn more about UREX, visit www.sustainability.asu.edu forward slash urban resilience. If you have any questions, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email us at futurecitiespodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at futurecitiespod. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.